Right now, Bet365 offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football for the next few weeks, with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365 Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined by the uh, the regular gang this week. Uh, all very happy after that wondrous performance. James McNicholas, Amy Lawrence and Lee Dixon. Good afternoon. Hello, hello. Hello. Um, well, Good afternoon. We are going to talk about uh, the FA Cup. Also have a little sort of look back at the season and what a season uh, it's been. But let's concentrate on the FA Cup for a short while um james suggested we ask the question what's our favorite moment from the celebrations james uh you i think were the only one of the four of us who were actually there so we'll start with you what's your favorite moment well actually do you know what funnily enough it's something that was picked up by the tv cameras and when the whistle goes the first thing michael Arteta does he turns around and he hugs the club doctor gary o'driscoll and i've got to shout out my mate paul who actually pointed this out to me but um, basically, as he's as they're going towards each other, Mikel says to Gary, says, I told you, I told you, believe in me. And Gary O'Driscoll, it's, it's quite incredible, he sort of goes, I do believe in you, my friend. And then they have this massive <laughs> hug. And it's kind of brilliant because it shows, well, as a fan, you love all that stuff. You know, it's kind of spine tingling, really. But I think it also, it demonstrates what Arteta's tried to do. He's tried to create this conviction in the squad about where they can go under his direction and the trophy it solidifies that it crystallizes it it's proof of concept it's proof that if they put the work in if they listen to him good things can happen and seeing the staff kind of embrace that element too in that moment of celebration it was fantastic that's great amy what about you your favorite moment from the celebrations i'll come to the favorite moment in a sec but just picking up on james's point um the background to that is really important too, because Gary O'Driscoll was going to live, leave for Liverpool um, mm. a, a few months uh, before the end of this season. He'd agreed. Um, he's very, very, very highly regarded and rated, but also very much loved within the camp. And I think it was a one of those where he um, he hummed and hard and, and prevaricated and wondered for a long time about whether he should leave for Liverpool or, or stay at Arsenal. And he decided that, Probably, you can probably understand why going to join what's going on at Liverpool uh, with Jurgen with Klopp to be part of a team that wins leagues and Champions Leagues has its big temptations. And then COVID happened and Arteta came and one of the first things he did was really try very hard to persuade Gary O'Driscoll to reverse his decision to leave, uh, which he did. And so that kind of believe in me thing has extra resonance because it was very much down to that personal touch of Arteta's um, uh, 
way of convincing and, uh, uh, and appealing to important people behind the scenes. You know, the players, having a guy who's the doc, who they love and trust, it's really one of those people within the fabric of the group that are, are underrated outside the club and so, so, so important within. Um, so that's fab. Um, my own personal moment is linked slightly to the fact that it's really predictable. I'm sorry I'm not even going to say this out loud, but I wasn't even in England while the FA Cup final was on. Um, I've managed to escape uh, briefly. <gasps> uh, I didn't take a plane. I've not been too naughty. I uh, stayed in the car, jumped on the shuttle and come out the other side. We were in northern France. And uh, the fantastic thing about watching the French version of the FA Cup final is that I didn't hear the song. <laughs> I had absolutely no sense that that song was played at the end of the game. I got that sense very quickly from lots of people who sent me messages on Twitter. Hello. But I managed to, in my, for me, it never happened. Uh, so Arsenal won the cup and, and in my mind, there was no Sweet Caroline. So uh, that was probably my favourite part of the celebrations. I should just point out, uh, two minutes, 54 seconds it took uh, Amy to mention Sweet Caroline. Yeah. Um, who had over on that, by the way? Um, Lee, what about you? Your favourite moment? Well, I too was um, absent from the cup final, although um, Amy sounded as if she watched it. I was moving house on Saturday, which was an absolutely ridiculous right. time of the year to move house on FA Cup final day. But... I wasn't really planning on it being so late in the middle of August or whatever it is. So um, the date was set and I, I moved house. So I was desperately trying to get, um, being a 5.30 kickoff, wrapped everything up and the, the removal men were busy at work and we had a deadline to get back to the house and somehow set set some sort of TV up and, and watch it. But um, I failed miserably. So I didn't see, I, I managed to watch a little bit on um on my laptop um i missed the good. first 20 minutes which was probably a good thing um but then heard uh, heard about what was going on and how they'd recovered and bounced back and all of that so um and then kind of lost signal again um towards the end of the game so my celebrations were um or the celebrations that you're after my favorite one would i have seen the cup <laughs> drop which any captain in who's worth his salt has dropped a cup so i hope it becomes a real habit for him and he stays and drops more cups but i've been there done that and we broke more trophies than i can than i can tell you about and um, some of them were public some of them weren't um the the championship um back in 89 and 91 that beautiful trophy for winning the league championship with that ornate lady on the top um she she looked like she'd had uh, a little bit too many drinks when uh, after we'd finished with her because she she was dropped on her head and it bent at forty five degrees. One of the lads tried to bend it back and then got a stress fracture at the bottom of her legs, which uh, I feel as if I've got a stress fracture in my legs at the moment. But yeah, so that's an angle that, that perhaps it shouldn't be at. Um, so I think a trophy drop is definitely worth um, a mention. Uh, well, it was, our it was a lovely moment. It was a good I mean, one. It as was well, nice yeah. to see them all laughing together. <laughs> uh, for me, um, two moments. Uh, Emmy Martinez um, holding the cup on the phone to his um, family, I believe. I don't know. I wasn't listening in. And just the emotion on the guy's face really, I think it got to everyone, didn't it, really? Um, mm, and also, yeah. because of what's happening with Pierre Emerick Abamyang 
and we're all trying to read the runes and trying to work out whether he'll stay or whether he whether he goes. Um, there was a picture of him with uh, with Mikel Arteta with a cup, uh, and it said uh, "My manager," and um, I sort of took that as a good omen, uh, and I hope. Uh, that is the case. I guess we'll find out uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, I want to, James. I just want to go back to the point you made about the uh, club doctor, Gary O'Driscoll. Um, I mean, Amy, you talked about the fact that uh, that Mikel Arteta sort of convinced him. Um, he's basically done that with everyone, hasn't he, James? Uh, I think so. I mean, look, this Arsenal team aren't the finished article, are they? And I don't think anyone believes that, you know, off the back of the FA Cup win. You know, our league position, I think, demonstrates it. But I think what he has shown is he's taken a group of players who really looked like they were going nowhere in a hurry under the previous manager. I saw uh, on the blog, Le Grove, he called this team the uncoachables, which I think is a fairly apt uh, description. They really did seem like that. You know, you feared for Arteta and what he'd be able to do with this group. He's turned that round. He's turned the ship around. He's even turned it around since the break. You know, we came back from Project Restart. They lost two games in a few days, lost at Brighton. It all seemed to be going wrong and he steered the ship and ended up with the FA Cup. I think, you know, it's a huge, huge moment for Mikel Arteta to win a trophy in your first half season as a manager is fantastic. And it's testament to the job he's done. And as I sort of said before, I think for the players... There's that sense of if we suffer now, there is potentially this kind of reward. And for them to see that and experience it is so important. It gives Mikel Arteta so much authority in that dressing room if he didn't already have it. And that's really, really important for for any manager. Well, Lee, I mean, we've talked about about this team quite a bit. And what I, I mean, I know you talk about how hysterical fans can get. When you say fans, you mean me, I think. But um, uh, I think the general... Our general view was a bit in accord with Le Grove, is that they were uncoachable, and yet they're obviously not. Were we all just completely wrong about them, or did they just need proper coaching and proper direction? Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that they're not uncoachable because they've improved, which suggests that they're, they are open to the right kind of guidance. Um, I've said time and time again um, that the the group of players, when you look at them, um, I think we go back to to uh, Xhaka when when he was getting all that stick, and and I was saying I, I, I was saying at the time that for me he's not he's not the you know he's not good enough to to play that role on his own, and when he's when he's now playing under Arteta with a slightly different formations, slightly different guidance, we've seen you know a, a completely different player. I've still got my reservations about whether. Um, certain players in the squad can take the team to wh- where the team used to be, and that's challenging for the for the top honour. And that is, you know, it's not that's not uh, being cruel to winning the FA Cup. Obviously, it's one of the big trophies of the year to go for. But, but the league is always what you judge by, and until they get to that point, and time will tell whether the players that we're talking about and um, are going to be good enough for that level. I would suggest that they're not, but and I, and I would suggest that. Um, that Arteta probably knows that he can he can you know influence um, influence players' performances and give them a structure and a framework to play under. But I think he he would look at that and say this is only going to take us so far. And without recruitment and without heavy investment, 
you're not going to you're not going to be able to challenge Manchester City and 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 Liverpool at the top. So that's what he'll be aiming at because that's what he's that's the type of manager he is. He wants to set his sights really high. And so the achievement he's done this season to win a trophy and get into Europe is absolutely knocked the lights out with the group of players he's got, in my opinion. And so now it's like right, okay. Now we go to the next level, and the next level is obviously keeping Aubameyang and then being able to add to that. If Aubameyang was to leave, then it's a completely different ball game because now you take all those goals out of the team, <laughs> we're like fifteenth, you know. So that that's and and the league position is absolutely everything, you know. We became a cup side in the early nineties, and and you know our league form was tenth, and you know we we're finishing looking at the league, going, God, this isn't good enough, you know. And we needed to some we needed to really change it around, and it wasn't until. Um, Arsene came that that happened. I, I mean, this winning the cup, Amy, and, and doing what he's done in the last eight, ten weeks, it it does give him a huge amount of leverage, does it not, with the board? I hope so. Um, I was just thinking while he was talking there, there's something possibly that reminds me about uh, in George Graham's first season, Arsenal won the Littlewoods Cup against Liverpool. Uh, and, and the importance of winning a trophy for the group for the manager and for the sense of what they were trying to build was a very, very important platform. Um, and by the time, I'm not suggesting that this is in a couple of years, uh, Arsenal are going to be capable to be league champions, but by the time Arsenal were two years after that 87 League Cup win, there'd been quite a lot of change to the team. Um, but I think that what was, what was a, a produced in terms of a foundation by winning the cup by allowing the group of players that were coming through um, and George Graham having conviction and making sure everybody knew to buy into what he was doing. That really was important. And I just think Arteta, as such a young guy, like you know, there's a lot of managers who didn't win anything this year, obviously. Um, when he took this job, he seems incredibly sure and confident about his own ability, but he still had never managed a first team before ever and when you look back at what he has packed into this very short period it's so remarkable that doesn't mean that he's going to be one of the all-time great managers we, we don't know yet but the only way we're going to find out is if he has better tools at his disposal um but i'm i think it does a lot for him because i think if you're a coach and you realize that your methods are getting results and those results manifest themselves in different ways. So results in terms of individual players who have uh, found a new level or rediscovered confidence that have been decimated. So, you know, Jack and Mustafi, people like that. Whether that uh, those results are um, in terms of the strategy on the pitch, uh, the ability for the team to find itself, whether those results are obviously very visibly in terms of silverware, um, it all adds to this feeling of something growing and something working so now it's about refinement and if uh, you know uh, the powers that be in a hierarchy haven't clocked on to how the foundations are there but how much more can be achieved then wow because it's so obvious quite i mean i don't want to dwell too long on the fa cup because i know people have spoken about it quite uh, a bit i i know we want to talk uh, a little bit about the season the season started about a hundred years ago, as far as I can tell. Um, can we have? Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I suppose our best moment of the season has to be 
um, winning the FA Cup, does it not? Or do any other moments stand out for any of you? Lee, I'll start with you. Do you have a best moment of the season aside from that, perhaps? When you set out in the in the in the season, you want your target is to finish as high up in the in the league as you can, and if you and win a trophy, and 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 realistically, the only trophies that you can win, um, you know, the cup competitions, because you you way off, you know, way off challenging for the top of the league. So when you look at that and you see the other the other goal is obviously to qualify for Europe um, and, and put us in a position where the, the amount of income coming in gives you a little bit of uh, leeway with the with the board and the and the owners to say, you know, can I can I have some money based on the fact of what I've achieved. So when you look at that, the FA Cup stands out a mile. It, it achieved two things. It it gave us a trophy. Um, and a big trophy at that, um, and and it also put us in a position where Arteta's now, as as you as you pointed out, is quite rightly going to stand in front of those uh, the hierarchy and say, right, well, come on, you know, we are. It's great. It's you know, but as soon as you've put the trophy down and uh, and you know finish your celebrations, you you have to put it into the cupboard and get rid of it because it's not that that's no benchmark for anything winning the FA Cup. It's great and it's brilliant, and don't, I'm not not downsizing it. But if if that is the, if that is winning a cup is your thing, then this club needs to reevaluate. And I'm sure, and the brilliant thing is that Arteta has sights set way above that. It's it's right up at those top boys going right. We want to get up there, and he knows how big a job that is. But with the with the players, the young players coming through, and the the strong arm, the strong arm of winning a trophy, that what that does for him, um, puts him in a really, you know, really brilliant position. That's why he was, you know, so happy at the weekend. James, is there an argument that the Man City game was probably the the most crucial of all of the games? Because in terms of Mikel Arteta's personal, um, you know, um, mm. achievement, you know, he he beat a team from his, I mean, the first team as well. Let's be fair, the Man City first team, his mentor, his, you know, the, the guy who showed him the ropes, or certainly one of the guys who showed him the ropes, that, is there an argument to say that is maybe a more important win even than the final? No. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Lee's right in that, of course, the trophy is the thing. But what I would say is when you said highlights of the season aside from the cup, I mean, that semi-finals, what immediately springs to mind. And when you look at, the Man City team that we faced and the Chelsea team that we faced. There's only a couple of places between them in the league, but I think there is a, a big gap there in terms of quality. I mean, that is a really outstanding Manchester City team. And I think given that, and given the fact that it was sort of Arteta against his his former boss, his mentor, his mate in Guardiola, uh, and the fact that it got us to that Wembley final and sort of kept our, our season alive and our hopes of qualifying for Europe alive, I think it was clearly a really significant result. And... You know, I think it probably did play its part in the final. The fact that they had had been to Wembley before, got the result before, played yeah. you know in that fashion, in that formation, in that quite compact style. Um, you know, I think that definitely, definitely helped. So, I think uh, although the cup win is the thing, that is the sort of season-defining 
moment. Uh, I think they will. Arteta particularly will reflect on that City win as a kind of a crucial moment in his own development as a coach. Which is exactly what I was trying to say, but in less words. But Lee, just sure. <laughs> Thank you for for backing me up there in some way, Amy. I mean, I know we've taken the big moments. Is there any any others that stand out for you? Was it the appointment of Mikel Arteta in the first place? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's such a strange season and you can look at it in a kind of two-halves situation. I was just looking back through the fixtures and the results and it's interesting, all those moments that you're thinking about, everything we talk about, season highlights, <coughs> highlights has happened in this, in this back end, in this second half. There's not many highlights from the first half. Um, and, you, you know, it's, it's amazing to reflect when you think about this season as a whole on quite how... Uh, soul-destroying a lot of that first half of the season was. Um, and the sense that, I mean, do you remember in on this very podcast, it doesn't, it, you know, he says it feels like a million years ago, but there was a genuine question, are Arsenal too good to go down? Which Lee completely m- mocked from the get-go. <laughs> um, but the question was asked to Stoney. And um, I think there were anxieties there that it felt like Arsenal were on such a downward curve and it didn't feel like it was um, changeable and, and, and of course we subsequently found out that you know there was um, some will within the club to extend Unai Emery's contract you know in a kind of parallel universe who knows what might have happened had thing, had different decisions been made um, finally getting around to that decision to, to replace um, you know, a, a, a well-meaning, good coach that just wasn't right for Arsenal. Uh, they've made the decision that is turning out to, to be very promising. I mean, I read someone someone meant, uh, asked a question the other day, and I thought it was quite an interesting one uh, about whether um, should Arteta have been appointed when Arsene Wenger uh, stepped uh, stepped down or you know went. You know, the, the opportunity was there. They interviewed him as well as in memory and, you know, wonder how things might have been had that, that change come differently. I, I, I don't know, what do you think, Lee? I mean, I reckon it might have been too early for him if it had been straight after Arsene. And in a way, having that buffer allowed Arteta to come in after something that was going wrong but wasn't so clearly associated with this huge history. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a... It's a... The big shoes to fill coming in after Arsene, regardless of what everybody was, more majority of people were saying, it's time, you know, um, that Arsene stepped down. Um, I think it was a perfect little um, period of time for him to assess what he wanted to do, how he wanted to go the next step in his career and and go on and, and be a manager and step out of the shadow of Pep and so it's absolutely perfect for him. He could he couldn't have picked a perfect better time to go into Arsenal after that. So I think he's you know and he's reaped the benefits of that by all of his own work. You know, I was when he first came in, I think everybody was a little bit skeptical to, you know, is it too soon? It's his first job. And mine was based on, you know, you're only as good as your players. And when we look at the players under how they were performing under under Emery, it was like, oh, good luck with that bunch, you know, because they didn't look as if they had the, the you know, the, the willingness to, to even try. Um, and that just shows the importance of, of connection and relationship with the coach, that you can bring the best out of players and, and players, you know, and there, I, yeah, this part of me that flips into the other side going, 
yeah, well, you should be like that under every manager and you should be giving your best and you shouldn't be downing tools. But with the human beings, and we all have moments when we go, do you know what, I just can't do this anymore. If those, if those moments tie in with the five or six of the players in the team at the time, you're in big trouble. So um, the character of the team was questioned. The dressing room, I, you know, you don't know that until you're in the dressing room. But he's got, he's definitely got something that players can can connect to and relate to. And he's he, he he's got that little, almost a little bit of pep in him that, and it's his own stuff. I'm not I'm not saying he's, but he's got that something that that players go, yeah, I'm gonna do it for him. And Narsen had it and George had it. George had it in a different way because it was more of a authoritarian way with George. But, you know, you, you I, I remember playing with Ar, for Arsen and, you know, if he, if we were having a bit of a bad run, I, I wanted to, I looked at him and I, I said, I want to do it for him because I don't want him to get any stick. Forget about me. I just want the team to do well because he's such a lovely guy and I really respect him and I want him to, you know, I want him to, he, he doesn't need me to want that for him because he's big enough and we've seen over the years how well he carried himself you know his head held high and, and almost gracefully in the end it was perhaps a bit too long at the club but ultimately players wanted to play and do well for him well let's yeah. hope it is the same with Mikel Arteta I'm, I'm definitely saying that Mikel Arteta uh, his appointment was a pivotal moment um have we got a um a worse moment can I can I put forward uh, Granite Xhaka against Crystal Palace. Um, for me, I don't think I've ever felt quite so low at a football match. I mean, I've watched plenty of football when we've lost and it's been grim. But that, I did actually think to myself, what am I putting myself through this for? Coming to watch this. I was so gutted afterwards. I was angry. It was it was a very, very strange and, and uh, an odd afternoon. Um, and I, I think that was a low point for me. And, I, and I'm watching Granite Xhaka celebrate the other day. Um, I, I just couldn't quite believe that that's only sort of eight months after the whole armband, armband gate, if you want to call it, um, had, had happened uh, at the Emirates. Uh, anyone mm. want to disagree? I think it's difficult to look past that. I mean, I was there in my season ticket that day and genuinely at that moment, I felt like turning around and walking out. Mm. It was a really horrible moment within the ground. Um, I mean, another one that springs out to me, I don't want to dwell on it too much because we're, you know, we're celebrating the cup final too, but around that time, I think it was maybe a couple of weeks before, a couple of weeks after, Arsenal went to Leicester um, and I was there that night and they lost 2-0. And it was just kind of, I mean, the, the scoreline could have been, the gulf could have been wider. And it was kind of indicative of two teams who at that point were really headed in opposite directions. You know, Leicester were going well under Brendan Rodgers and Arsenal were going nowhere under Unai Emery. And that wasn't too great either, as I recall it. Amy, what about you? Worst moment? We've had a few to choose from, haven't we? Yeah, I, I agree with you on the Xhaka one. Um, that was a very painful uh, afternoon, I, I think. There was a lot of emotion uh, a lot of negative emotion um, all over the place, and it, it, I think it felt very raw for people. I think you, you called it right, Stony, when you say you kind of asked why are you putting yourself through this. I mean, part of signing up to be a football fan is you, you know, you're, you're there thick and thin, good and bad. But that was one that I think I certainly went home, and I think others did questioning, you know, how my relationship with football and with my club was. It just felt very disheartening to... It's not the first time in Arsenal's recent history. Um, 
to have those kind of things going on. I mean, the whole uh, divisiveness towards the end of the Arsene Wenger reign at times got very, very complicated and, and hard to accept. Um, so it felt like a bit of a reminder of that kind of thing. And, and I think it's hard for any club to make serious progress when the, there's that kind of atmosphere. You do need a sense of unity and everyone pulling in the same direction, and that includes the fans. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 another game that I think was pretty grim was the 2-2 draw at Watford, oh, in gosh. the sense that, oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Don't remind, I'd Lee, forgotten about that. Are you now ready? You, oh, yeah, that was, a re, that was a I mean, if you... I actually went back and watched uh, some highlights of that recently Why? because we because we were doing the review. We had to do the review of the season thing, and it, I think um, I think one of the categories was worst defensive performance or something similar. Um, and I, I, I rewatched that second half. Just Christ, it was excruciating. <laughs> and I suppose to do something like that, with due respect, at Watford, you know, a team who ended up relegated rather than at one of the top three or four teams who are in the Champions League felt like a, yeah. a, I guess, symbolic of like, you know, you think you think things were, were pretty bad and were going in the wrong direction in the Emory, but it was like, look, there's, you know, there's something very humiliating going on here. There's something that's really broken in the sense of the team's ability to be competitive, um, to be going and... and looking so petrified. Was that the game when someone came out afterwards and said that they were scared? It was Shaka. Yeah. And, and you know, to, to have that sort of admission that you know, the team was scared of playing away from home at Vicarage Road was just like, OK. I was in America doing NBC in the studio and normally commentate for them, but I was over there in the studio. And there's a section in the daily programme, which is like eight hours on air, and there's a section that we go, uh, it's like a boot room section where we, we get out of our chairs and we go and sit in this like lounge type and we get 10 minutes to chat about whatever you want to chat about. And uh, <laughs> Did you take and a there breath? Was, there, was three of, there was me, Robbie Musto and Robbie <laughs> Earl and Rebecca Lowe was presenting and me. And we go and the producer says, what do you want to talk about? And then everybody just went, just let Lee rant for 10 minutes nonstop. <laughs> so they, they gave the whole section over to me and I did... I did about five pieces of analysis. The Piero machine that puts all the ink on the on the showing all the squiddles and the things, it it blew up in the in the uh, in the production room because I put so much on it, and it was I, I literally went into this rant for ten minutes, and then when I finished, I just went, I, I, I I'm done, and uh, the producer just went, ah, that's a wrap, well done, because they recorded it, and uh, I listened to it four or five times on that day because they get replaying it. And I just went, and I, in, in the end, even I started feeling sorry for the players I'd had to go at them that much. And it was just the, it was just terrible. But a lot of those players now, are, you know, are still, are still there and performing and it just shows the power of, of what Arteta's done. Can we have an honourable mention for Brighton at home as well? <laughs> um, because... I think that was the one that uh, was that the one that Unai got sacked after that game. Yeah, I think there this was. Po this podcast is really negative yeah, considering yeah, yeah, just won the cup. Let's come on, come on, come on! We just won the FA Cup. We got that, you know, don't. All right, all right then. Well, let's have. Okay, I'm sorry about that, but we did want to do the worst moment of the season as well. But let's have a. Can we? Do we have a player of the season? I mean, it's a bit odd, isn't it? Mm. Um, do we do we maybe pick someone who was so bad at the beginning? So sort of like a degree of difficulty coming back from that? Amy, go on. Aubameyang all day long. I can't, I mean, 
I think he has been extraordinary I mean, in his consistency. And we've analysed how erratic and turbulent and weird this season has been. And the way he's held it together, uh, very few um, under par performances, even if the team's been struggling. Consistency of his goal scoring, um, his levels very of work few rate and energy. As well. Yeah, I, I, I just think he's... People, some people will never quite come around to the idea that he is, you know, the appropriate captain. But I think he's led by example this season. And as, you know, in in all of football, in all of the major leagues, there's only what four people who have scored twenty goals a season plus over the last five years, and it's him in there. I've said this before. I think with uh, Messi, Ronaldo, and Lewandowski, he just is a class above. And I can't, you know, I think there have been some, some uh, challenges, but I think it's easy to decide on player of the year for me. I mean, I think oh, that's fair enough, isn't it, James? I mean, you could make a case for the two goalkeepers. I mean, somebody did yeah. say that our three it, best players have been Aubameyang and our two goalkeepers. <laughs> yeah, it says I, I, a lot I, about the team. And I think if one of them had played a full season, I think they, they'd definitely be in the mix. But you can't look past Aubameyang, given what he did in the final and not just the final the semi-final as well I mean four goals at Wembley across the two games I think he's been outstanding he's been a great goal scorer without a huge amount of supply um, and I think he's underlined his importance to the team and the club so I can't look past him really Lee? Alright then Aubameyang I'll tell you an interesting one though what about young player of the year I mean Saka has obviously yeah. caught the most uh, attention but are we sure it's Saka or does anyone want to throw another name out there? Martinelli, for example. Yeah, absolutely. He was played, came in, played out of position, loads of pressure on him, played in his position. Then we weren't sure where his position was and then he just goes out and just excites. Then he sat on the bench for a bit and came on and made things happen from the bench. So he's, yeah, he's got a massive future. I believe he does. Lee, we're going to let you go uh, in a short while. We are going to talk about the future in a, uh, in a little bit. But just from your point of view, um, what does this team need? Um, I mean, just a couple. if we had to get a couple of positions, where would you, uh, where would you uh, strengthen the team? For well, next hope, hopefully not um, centre-forward because, you know, Aubameyang is pivotal to everything, I think, that, that Mikel Arteta is going to do. And if he doesn't, if he does leave, then that just throws a proper spanner in the works. Every, you know, because you've got to replace his goals, and to do that, it's going to take all of his budget. So keep him under under any circumstances, and that means paying him what what he wants. Um, and and then you've got to look at his his style of play, the way he's going to play, and and what players we've got to fit into those positions. I think definitely think we need to you know still still strengthen at centre back. You know the the three at the back works for um, works of, for the centre backs we've got. It's a better system to work, but I still think the centre backs that we've got are not good enough. But that's you know, um, and that's not not taking away recent performances. But I think let me let me just quantify what I'm saying based on the fact that I always I always start off at about the team as if we're going to be where we should be so it's not and that's probably a not not a very accurate way of doing it because we should be then we should be now going what players do we need to to get into the top four and i don't i just bypass that i'm not bothered with the top four 
I'm just like, how do we get to challenging for the top? So my assessment of the team is probably a bit more brutal because we are way, way, way off that. And so we need to sign we need to sign world-class players in certain positions. And I think centre-back, um, a creative midfield player, Ceballos has come in and done brilliantly well. So I think, um, but I'm still not convinced that, that he, him on his own can be our creativity. So... Um, central midfield creative player and a holding player <laughs> apart from that <laughs> the spine is what the you're spine, talking about isn't the it, really? spine stony yeah the only thing i would say is i think we need to be sort of cognizant of what we would like them to do and what's going to be realistic mm. i mean while we've been talking on air Arsenal have announced they're going to make 55 redundancies, you know, which I think demonstrates yeah. the, Ozil, uh, the financial situation. That... <laughs> Unclear as yet who's been affected by that decision. But yeah. um, I think that, you know, lays it very clear, you know, how, how precarious the financial situation is. Um, I, I think Lee's absolutely right. I think for me, central midfield is the key area. And that's where they're going to try and leverage the players they have got, people like get doozy, you know, and see, can they get some cash in? Can they do a part exchange? Because that's the other part they've got to improve. And I think given the way he's played in the last few weeks, if they can keep Danny Ceballos, I think that would be a, a positive step at this point. Amy? I'm curious as to how much um, improvement, how much bolstering in certain positions is possible. Because while a lot of players have redeemed themselves to an extent this year, it is, I don't think that disguises the need to upgrade in you know a lot of positions um so yeah curious to see how much can be achieved yeah center back for me i mean i hope that saliba works out after that i'm i'm a bit concerned um but but as you say lee keep it upbeat we won the cup and let's celebrate um nice to speak to you as always lee thanks for joining see us you soon thanks to our good pals at beer52.com you have the opportunity to sip eight yes eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic and pay the postage of £4.95. And, as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of the Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's ten free beers for those slow at maths. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest craft breweries planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then, they are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. But they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash athletic to get your free case. And don't forget, right now, the athletic listeners get two extra free beers. Thanks to Lee Dixon, as always. Um, I'm still here with Amy 
Robbie Lawrence and James McNicholas. Now, The Athletic has made one article free uh, from each of the journalists who work for them. And uh, James and Amy, you picked an article each. Uh, James, let's go to you first. What's the article that you picked this year? Well, I chose a profile that I wrote about Francis Kagagao, who's a scout who served with Arsenal for a long time now. Goes right back to working under Steve Rowley and Arsene Wenger. Uh, and he's the head of international recruitment and has been there for about 18 months or so, I think I'm right in saying. And I think it's an interesting time to read that piece as we open another transfer window, as we see players linked with the club and you know we wonder what exactly the recruitment strategy is at Arsenal. Personally, I have quite a sort of romantic <laughs> view of scouting, that sort of eye for a player. Um, and I think Francis has shown that in his career. People like Hector Bellerin, Cesc Fabregas uh, have all sort of been spotted by him. Uh, and, you, you know, you do wonder at this point, are the club still exploring and using the scouting department to the, the extent that they can? Uh, or are they, you know, maybe taking a different approach to their recruitment? So, yeah, I, I, it's free to read for seven days. So do check it out. I mean, it was interesting because I was reading a piece this morning um, about... Uh, Kieran Tierney and um, mm. he's possibly our best recruit um, yeah. of the last couple of seasons um, and when you think about Scotland and how people ignored um, Virgil van Dijk for so long even though he's playing up there and everyone went he's brilliant and everyone went oh yeah but it's only in the Scottish League maybe um, we need to look a bit closer to home because you can get some bargains up there can't you Amy? I'm not an expert on Scottish football but um, obviously Kieran Tierney has uh, arrived and I think there was a lot of excitement about him and people weren't quite able to see it at the start but wow when you consider how he's finished this season um he just is a tremendous example of what can be achieved you know the finances weren't outrageous to bring him in um it's the you know it's where you can find a high high quality for a, an affordable price uh and he just he feels like he's absolutely critical already uh, and that hasn't taken a year that's just taken more like weeks because so much the beginning of his time here was uh, was marred by injury but he, it's one of those he feels like a first name on the team sheet yeah. kind of a guy yeah. uh, and I don't think Arsenal have had that many defenders lately or certainly not enough who are first name on the team on the team sheet type of guys so oh. Let's find some more. Just to add on Kieran, I mean, Arsenal watched him for five years. Um, and I think... What look, took them so long? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I think, to be honest, they did try for him uh, when he was a teenager. But uh, Brendan Rodgers was a Celtic manager at the time. He'd just arrived at the club and he sort of told Tierney, look, you're going to play every week up here and you know stay here for a few more years. He did that. He was a Celtic fan as well and very happy living at home with his mum and dad. But they kept tracking him and they kept faith with him. And to be fair, they were absolutely right. As Amy says, I mean, he's playing in a league that isn't the strongest, but the way in which he's managed to make that step up. And I think he has been helped by the lockdown. That gave him a bit of time to sort of work on his fitness, get himself up to the level of fitness that was required to get through all this these 90 minutes in this intense period. But he has been a fantastic, fantastic signing. I also think, just uh, not that we're going to go on about him, but his relationship with Aubameyang seems to me to almost be key to um, about one of the things that is key to Aubameyang staying as well. Um, I, th I think that Aubameyang likes playing with him behind him. Um, Amy, what was the piece that you chose uh, from The Athletic? 
I chose the piece that was uh, written on the moment that we talked about and meant such a lot to you and many others at the time, which was uh, Granite Xhaka Armband Gate. Mm. Um, and that was the moment really when I realised what writing for The Athletic was and how it could be different from uh, uh, more traditional newspaper-style journalism. Because at the end of that game, obviously, when you're, when you're at a game and there's a massive story breaking in front of your eyes, uh, a kind of panic station sets in and, and everybody fires off on new levels of, adre of adrenaline from a work point of view, trying to get all the information, trying to get across what's happened. There's usually a sort of hard news line edge, which sometimes lacks a little bit of emotion or nuance. Um, and I was watching my colleagues from uh, all the papers sort of squirrelling around at a, a rate of knots, holding their computer in one hand and their phone up to the ear in the other and a lot of pressure. And they would have had a match report spot to be filled and a quotes piece spot to be filled. So it's quite a structured, rigid reaction to that event. And I just sat there and took my time and looked around and spoke to a few people and did a lot of thinking um, and had in a way, a extra breathing space to try and uh, capture and try and put across the enormity of this event in some context and with some emotion and some nuance. And that was that's not something you can do on a daily newspaper. So uh, I think the luck of that was that it felt like a piece that captured a moment in time that was very significant, not just for Granite Jacket, but for the club um, uh, as a whole. And... Um, why do we care about sport? Why do we watch all the time? It's because you have an emotional reaction to what's going on. It's because you care. And this felt like a big one. And being able to try and put that across um, was it, it was something that I wouldn't say I enjoyed writing it because it wasn't an enjoyable moment, but I felt like it was an important thing to try and do well and to try and give it some perspective. Well, just to give you an idea of how I felt about that, I, I remember... I think it was, I don't know how many days after you wrote that piece, but I... I wrote, um, it, at the I wrote it that night. I wrote that it night. Uh, well, I because yeah. I, I tried to read it, I think, on the on the, the <laughs> day after, and I just couldn't. Partly because I was so, when I was so hungover, because we got so angry drunk on the night <laughs> that it happened, but also because I just thought, I'm not ready. It took me a couple of days to, to process what had happened that day. Um, and, and I remember reading it and, and thinking... Oh yeah, this is this is what happened. This this conveys how I feel uh, about this moment. When we were talking about good moments of the season, I think another one that is linked to that, from Jacques's point of view, and the arc of redemption, if you like, was the the two two draw at Stamford Bridge, which was very memorable and very uplifting, and felt like an important signpost for a lot of the time. But Granite Xhaka put in an individual performance that day when he when he stepped into the defence for quite a lot of the game after Jadavuiz had been sent off. And it was a stellar, influential, important performance. And I remember watching just being astonished uh, and impressed by the extent, you know, to have plummeted to those depths and then rise up to be able to put in such a mature and intelligent performance for the team uh, really felt like something was happening. I, mean, I was just going to sort of add to that, really. The redemption of Granite Xhaka uh, is, a, is, a, is a huge story this season, isn't it? It is. 
And it's not unique. I mean, there are redemption narratives all through this team. You know, if that's Emmy Martinez, sort of 10 years in the wilderness, lifting the cup. If it's Danny Ceballos, seemingly close to the exit in January. Mustafi. Key to the team by May. Mustafi, I mean, you know, couldn't get a game at the start of the season. Was, you know, seemingly persona non grata at Arsenal and then made himself integral to Arteta. Uh, it is quite an extraordinary roller coaster season, and it has ended on a high, thankfully. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess we will just get an opportunity to breathe ever so slightly before the next season gets underway. Now, on the last podcast, we did uh, talk quite a bit about Mesut Ozil, and and I saw comments on Twitter from people saying uh, the way that uh, James reacted. Um, but you both written uh, about Mesut Ozil and the ongoing situation. I mean, I mean, I would say to people, just read the piece, really. Do you have anything to add to what you wrote, um, James? Yeah, I do think read it because uh, I think it's, I mean, uh, you know, Amy did the bulk of the work on it and I think it is genuinely a, a really interesting look at a fascinating situation. I know that it can be a little bit exhausting and I've certainly been exhausted by it at times, but Arsenal do find themselves in this quandary where they have this this player on this enormous contract who's not being used and it, it it's never really felt more like a resolution has to be found than it does right now and I personally am of the opinion that Arsenal and Ozil you know somehow need to try and sit down get their heads together and and find a way to get out of this relationship because I don't think it I don't think it's helping anybody right now um whether or not that's particularly likely uh, is discussed in the piece, but it, it would be difficult to broach such an agreement. Amy, it did. It was a very balanced piece. I mean, I definitely am not a fan of Meza Ozil. I loved watching him play in the past, but I just, you know, want him gone uh, now, really. But as James said, it's how you work out those details. There's 15 million reasons why I might want to stay. <laughs> Yeah, but I also think that, you know, uh, to try and put the uh, other side of the coin across is that here's a guy who signed a contract in good faith yes. when it was presented to him. Um, it was very expensive. He's not in control of how much money Arsenal offered to pay him. And, uh, you know, it's just not realistic to expect someone to turn around and go, no, 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 that's far too much. Um, you know, he, <laughs> What if it he all goes a, wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, yeah, I... While there, I think there are some very interesting strategic reasons as to why he's perhaps not as efficient as he has been in the past for Arsenal. Um, you know, not, the number ten position has become uh, sort of altered uh, in in more modern football trends, and I think it was really interesting when you sit back and look at the analysis that says, look, a player like Özil does well when he's got you know certain people between the lines to combine with and. All of a sudden, he, he doesn't really have anyone. Arsenal don't really have anyone that operates particularly between the lines anymore. Um, so, in some ways, the, the way they've changed the, the squad has not made it easy for him. It's not making an excuse, it's just an observation. But he has, um, I think, felt a little bit isolated. Uh, and it's very easy to turn around and slag him off, as a lot of people do, where you're earning all this money and, oh, God, you know... The, it's just all uh, a complete waste and he should go. And why should he go when Arsenal offered to pay him this contract? And he can argue, I'm there for training, I'm available for selection, I haven't changed. Um, Arsenal's changed a bit and he's continuing to change and maybe wants to change without him. But 
I do have some, I, I have some sympathy on both sides because I think Arsenal are in a position where it's not a contract that they can afford for a, a player who's not really in the picture. And I, I have some sympathy for Mesut Ozil, who hasn't actually done anything that wrong in the sense that he signed a contract that was offered to him and he's not behaved disgustingly that people are aware of. Um, he gets on with it and, it, you know, it's like he's the bad guy for... He's like, is he being punished for the fact that he was offered a big contract? So I'm... I'm a bit uncomfortable about where I sit in all of this, except fundamentally I just feel sad because it's it's no good for anyone. It's a bad marriage now. And, you know, in that last knockings of a bad marriage, it's usually pretty bitter and sour and difficult. And it feels a bit like that. And it's just whether or not there is a resolution that can be found before the summer of 2021. Yeah, I have to um, uh, agree with what you both said and, and definitely with what James said about reading the article because I've, I've had a flea in my ear about Mesut Ozil for a couple of years now, but I did make me sort of stop a little bit and go, you know what, fair enough. There is there is blame on both sides and he's certainly not particularly acted in bad faith. He just has a slightly ethereal quality to him that maybe English football fans don't appreciate as well. Um, but anyway... Uh, that's enough of him. We do have. We should have our Mesut Ozil moment every week when we talk about him. <laughs> but uh, what we also uh, want to have from you guys is a song, something celebratory. I'm hoping uh, to finish us off uh, on what has been, I say, a roller coaster season. Uh, James, do you have a song? Yeah. Can I just ask that our producer Tayo plays a bit of this because it is extraordinary. I found a Neil Diamond song that is worse oh, than Sweet God. Caroline. <laughs> so I was thinking about this season. I was like, it ends with a happy ending. And there is a Neil Diamond song called I Believe in Happy Endings. It is oh. one of the worst songs I have ever heard. I believe in happy Starry skies and dreams come true I've believed it since I first met you And if I, if I knew technologically how to sort of make Amy listen to it in this moment, I would forcibly do it, but... If you could see my face, James. <laughs> but it's so perfect. I believe in happy oh. endings, and that's what we got. So, uh, yeah, that's what I brought to the party. So uh, I look forward to hearing your reposts to that. <laughs> it's hard to stop that, Amy. What have you got for, for a song? Another Neil Diamond hit, perhaps? I need a moment. <laughs> is that one of them um, or is that sorry that's not a song oh god no I actually thought about some really good songs mm. <laughs> yeah uh, this one is uh, I know would be popular with uh, producer Tayo um, we talked about this before and it uh, dedicated to uh, uh, the the king of the FA Cup uh, the saviour of the season William uh, Onyebor fantastic man um, so that would be one option and another because it was in my head and it just has a good vibe, a bit of an old school dance classic, Urban Soul, and my friends say it's going to be all right. Tell me, girl, is it going to be
Okay. I'm not choosing Sweet Caroline, by the way. You should uh, know, even though a lot of people were singing it at the weekend. And I did text Amy with O-O-O and got a rather a two-word reply that I won't repeat on a family podcast. The players were singing it. <laughs> the players point. were singing it, but Amy... Amy's not having it, and that's all that matters, okay? Um, and we have been talking, as well as the, the win, about redemption. So I chose redemption song, just like a bit of Bob Marley once in a while. Uh, oh, yeah, and I think there song. have been some tremendous redemption stories, as we just mentioned, uh, this year. Um, that's it, guys. Cut winners. Who'd have thought? Absolutely marvellous, marvellous way to end a ridiculous season. Uh, but it's been a pleasure. And um, we will be back at some point fairly soon. Uh, thank you to Amy. Thank you to James. And thank you to Tayo, uh, our producer, for keeping us in line. Uh, and thanks to Lee Dixon and Michael Cox as well, who joined us on occasion. Uh, and thank you for listening. I'm Ian Stone. This has been the Handbrake Off podcast for The Athletic. Mm-hmm.